It says, um, we pray and ask the Ruach to speak to us, to change us, to help us. The Lord knows we need help, and uh, I need help. I'm sure you do too. So, Elohe Avraham, Elohe Yitzhak, Elohe Yaakov, Elohe Yeshua, Mishikainu, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob. God of Yeshua, our Messiah, we come before you and we thank you for your goodness to us. Abba, we thank you that you're faithful and true. Lord, we're, we're thankful, God, that you who watch over Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps, that you're faithful to all your promises, that you're a God who does what he says. And Father, I just submit this um, time and your word to you. Father, I ask that you would speak to our hearts and change our lives by your Ruach. In Yeshua's name and God's people said, the title of today's message is Walking the Walk, Lessons from Acts chapter 5. As you know, through the summer, we're going to be in the book of Acts. And you know what? I, like you, take the word of God for granted sometimes. And what a privilege we have to be able to read about the early Kehilot and the principles that they walked in to advance the Malchut Elohim. To be able to sit down and glean insights from the very men who walked with Yeshua and started the greatest movement in world history. I mean, think about it. How many, how many books did you read in this past year? But we have the opportunity to read the stories and the acts and glean the principles from the very men that started the greatest movement in the history of mankind. Written down for us in the book of Acts. Wow. Does it, does it hit you like it, it hit me? The messianic movement, the one we're a part of 2,000 years later, is built upon the foundation of the work of the great men and women that we read about throughout the book of Acts. We're sitting here because of them, and we get to read about it and glean insight. So today I want to talk about three important principles that Acts chapter 5 highlights and encourage us to walk in these so that we can be as effective as the people and accounts we read about here in the book of Acts. The principles that I will highlight today are the importance of integrity the importance of unity, and the importance of conviction. These are three important keys to successful ministry. They certainly won't tickle any ears, but when walked out in the life of the believer, that will no doubt, they will bear fruit for the glory and kingdom of God. And isn't that what it's all about? Bearing fruit for God's kingdom and for God's glory. In order to set the scene for Acts chapter 5, and I want to thank Gary Salad uh, for speaking uh, for us last week, and I heard that the message was fantastic, and thank you, Gary. Appreciate that. And I don't know if he touched on this or not, but I'm going to touch on the last portion of chapter 4 to set the scene for chapter 5. 
And at the end of chapter 4, it says this, in verse 32. All the many believers were one in heart and soul, and no one claimed any of his possessions for himself, but everyone shared everything he had. With great power, the emissaries continued testifying to the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua, and they were all held in high regard. No one among them was poor, since those who owned lands or houses sold them and turned the proceeds over to the emissaries to distribute to each according to his need. Thus Yosef, whom the emissaries called Barnaba, which means exhorter, and the English Bible would say Barnabas. A Levi and native of Cyprus sold a field which belonged to him and brought the money to the emissaries. And this brings me to my first point. And the first key to success in ministry and the key to success as a believer in life who desires to bear fruit for the glory of God, which we all should. And that is the importance of integrity. Throughout his administration, Abraham Lincoln was a president under fire, especially during the scaring years, the scarring years of the Civil War. And though he knew he would make errors of office, he resolved never to compromise his integrity. So strong was this resolve that he once said, I desire so to conduct the affairs of this administration that if at the end, when I come to lay down the reins of power, I have lost every other friend on earth, I shall at least have one friend left, and that friend shall be down inside of me. Integrity can be defined as being who you say you are. Being who you say you are. What you portray yourself as is real. Think of that in terms of being a believer in the Lord. Who you say you are. who you declare you serve, who you left everything for, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? Now let's read from Acts chapter 5, starting at verse 1. But there was a man named Hananiah who with his wife Sapphira sold some property and with his wife's knowledge withheld some of the proceeds for himself. Although he did bring the rest to the emissaries, then Cephas said, Why has the adversary so filled your heart that you lie to the Ruach HaKodesh and keep back some of the money you received for the land? Before you sold it, the property was yours, and after you sold it, the money was yours to do as you pleased. So what made you decide to do such a thing? You have lied not to human beings, but to God. On hearing these words, Hananiah fell dead, and everyone who heard about it was terrified. The young man got up, wrapped his body in a shroud, carried him out, and buried him. And a few verses later, the same thing happens to his wife. 
My, oh, my. That could seem harsh. But you'll notice that throughout the scripture, God often sets a precedent for firsts. Matter of fact, we could see throughout the history of B'nai Israel that rebellion ran rampant. Yet it was Korach who was swallowed up by the earth. And what God does often is he wants everyone to know what he thinks about certain actions. And even though we might, quote unquote, not suffer the consequences immediately, like Hananiah and Sapphira or Korach, he wants us to know how he feels about it. And after all, at the end of the day, who are we to argue with God? Am I to say that that was harsh? Or simply say that God is just and God is right in his judgments. You see, the sin of Hananiah and Sapphira, according to the Jewish New Testament commentary, was not that they reserved some of the proceeds for themselves, but they tried to create the impression that they had not. They were pretending to be something that they weren't friends. That's what we call integrity or the lack thereof. God is a God of integrity. Isn't that great? What you see is what you get from God. We might love parts and aspects of God, and there might be some aspects of God that we don't like so much. Right? But he tells us up front who he is. He's a God of love. We like that one. But he's also a God of judgment. He's a God of grace and mercy. We like that one. But he's also a God of justice. And a God who won't compromise justice. It is what it is. And he'll call it the way it is because. What you see is what you get. God is looking for us to be men and women of integrity. And obviously, Hananias and Sapphira were not. The challenge to walk in integrity usually comes when being truthful and honest will cost us something. In this case, it costs some money. But it can be that we do not tell the total truth because we don't want to look bad to others. Maybe we want to present ourselves in a certain way so we are less than honest with things we tell others about ourselves or we simply portray a picture of ourselves that is untrue or exaggerated. Perhaps in this case, they lied so that they could appear to be as committed as Barnaba was. Because they saw in what high regard the emissaries held him in when he sold the lands and gave it. And wow, 
We'll do the same thing. But we'll, we'll pinch a little back, but we'll tell them we did the same thing. Can I tell you that as a spiritual leader, I've been told... far less than the truth on many, many occasions. Many occasions. And often, not for things that are necessarily a big deal. But people don't want to look bad. So they say something that's not true. Friend, the only thing we have when we stand before God is, listen, you know, Dr. Ray Gannon who spoke to us. He, I had him teach a time on leadership to the folks that were there. And it was great. I mean, the man's in spiritual leadership for over 40 years and had a lot to speak to us and insights, and we got to ask questions. But I want to say this, that for a man to get up and say that the, the, that people, there's people that hate him. But in front of others, they'll come off in a different light. And people will say things to your face and other things behind your back. Friends, listen, I can't be in control, nor can you, of what people say about us, right? I know I have people who are fans of mine, and I know that there are people who are not fans of mine. I know that. But this, you know what? is important as that may or may not be in the scheme of things, I don't know. But this one thing I do know, none of that matters when I stand before God and you stand before God. And you say, God, here I am. I was true to myself, true to your word and true to your ways. Some people might have liked it. Some people might have hated it and everything in between. But you know what? That really doesn't matter. What matters is integrity. Are you who you say you are? It doesn't sound like a big deal. God thought it was in Acts chapter 5. We might not think it's a big deal to fudge a little here or there or a little sin here and there, a little, you know, whatever we call it, here or there. And then, of course, we come out and we portray ourselves in a certain light. The truth is, God sees it all. He knows who you really are in your heart of hearts. 
He knows everything you think, even when your words don't line up with what you're thinking. He knows it. And it really doesn't matter what other people think or say or do. At the end of the day, the only thing that really matters is what will God say to you and to me in that day? What will he say? What will he think? How will he act? Integrity is an important issue. Listen to this little survey that was done. What qualities in employees irritate bosses the most? Burke Marketing Research asked executives in 100 of the nation's 1,000 largest companies. At the top of the list was dishonesty. Mark Silbert, whose temporary employee firm commissioned the study, says, if a company believes that an employee lacks integrity, all positive qualities, listen to this, all positive qualities ranging from skill and experience to productivity and intelligence become meaningless. Think about that. If the boss doesn't think you're honest, i.e. doesn't think you're a person of integrity, you could be the most skilled, you could be the smartest. It's meaningless without integrity. Six other factors were discovered, making a total of seven deadly sins, quote-unquote, that can cause you to lose your job. They are listed below in decreasing order of irritation value. One, irresponsibility, goofing off and doing personal business on company time shows a lack of integrity, right? You said you'd work for the company for eight hours, taking selfies of yourself and texting to your friends every five minutes is not exactly that, is it? Arrogance, ego problems, and excessive aggressiveness. Bosses dislike those who spend more time talking about their achievements than in getting the job done. Third is absenteeism and lateness. Does not show integrity. Not following company policy. Failure to follow the rules makes management feel an employee can't be trusted. Five, whining and complaining. Wow. What do we do now? Whining and complaining. Have you whined or complained? Yikes. And number six, laziness and lack of commitment and dedication. If you don't care about the firm, they won't care about you. Now, If that is the standard in a secular, unbelieving environment, how much more do we as believers need to walk in integrity as it pertains to the eternal kingdom of God? Right? It's important, folks. Integrity. To be who you say you are. We say we're believers in the living God. That we serve Yeshua the King, Messiah of Israel, and Savior of the world, that we walk in His ways. 
So we need to be careful as to how we represent things. It's not just about saying the right things and the things that people want to hear or the things that will make us look good. It's about being honest and telling the truth. Truthful, integrity, honesty. Hananiah and Sapphira, man, today we would call that a little white lie. I mean, come on, they gave most of it. It's a lot of money. They sold a piece of land. Got a couple of hundred thousand and they gave 175. Who's to know? What's the big deal? God struck them down because they portrayed it as if they gave it all. I surrender all. In a worship service, God, surrender all. Everything I am and hope to be. Do you know when we say stuff like that, God's listening? And I think we should say it but we should also live it. Walking the walk. Walking the walk that God has laid before us, friends, I'm going to tell you right now, is not easy. It's not an easy walk. It's not a crutch, as the world would say. It's a difficult, challenging walk. Yeshua said the road is narrow and arduous that leads to life, and few find it. Oh, you said broad is the way and easy is the road that leads to destruction and many travel that one. Oh, that one is so easy. But he said the one that leads to life is a difficult road. Why? Because being a person of integrity is not easy to, easy to do. But it is our calling, isn't it? It is what God's desire, and we see what God thinks of the lack of integrity. So let us be men and women of integrity. Amen? The second key we see here is the importance of unity. And I'll read from verse 12 in Acts 5. Meanwhile, through the emissaries, many signs and miracles continue to be done among the people. United in mind and purpose, the believers met in Shlomo's colonnade, and no one else dared to join them. Nevertheless, the people continued to regard them highly, and throngs of believers were added to the Lord, both men and women, whatever a throng is. They went so far as to bring the sick into the streets and laid them on mattresses and stretchers, so that at least Cephas' shadow might fall on them as he passed by. Crowds also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and every one of them was healed. All these great things that were happening around the first century 
Kehilot is centered around the fact that they were united in mind and purpose. Say united. Oh, there's so many things that could be said about unity. United we stand, right? And divided we fall. Is that not just a statement? It is a truism. Matter of fact, did not God say to the folks in Bavel when they were building the tower into the sky that being unified, there was not anything that they could not accomplish? So he confused their speech. Understanding that being united is powerful. We have all heard more than our share of messages on unity and purpose. Matter of fact, here at Beth Emanuel, we recently did a series on the purposes of the Kehilot based on Acts chapter 2. Remember? Just... So the weakness we have isn't because we lack the knowledge, but it's in execution. And I want to tell you, that is where it always comes down to in the kingdom of God. Not that we don't know what to do, it's executing what we need to do. Imagine with me for a minute that we could all come together focused on the same agenda namely advancing the kingdom of God without regard to our personal likes or dislikes, without regard to having things done our way or trying to pick and choose the things we will support and the things that we won't. You don't have any of that here in Acts 5. They were all in. They were all in. Whether it pertained to giving, as we just read, or sharing their faith or supporting the leadership, they were all in. Do you hear me? They weren't in when they wanted to be in. They were all in to the purpose and vision. They were all in. They weren't all in part-time. They were all in. They weren't all in based on how they felt. They were all in based on the commitment they made. Unity of mind and purpose. They were united in mind and in purpose. They were all pulling in the same direction. Not each one doing their own thing. They were a team and could care less if it meant that things needed to be done differently than they were accustomed. I want to tell you, over the years of leading Beth Emanuel, we get all sorts of um, suggestions. And we're open to suggestions. But if we did every suggestion, we would have conflicting suggestions. So that's not how we do it here. We run it by the vision that God gave us. Because if I take your suggestion today and yours tomorrow and yours next week and yours next month, it will look crazy. 
And I understand that you would do it different than you would do it, and you would do it different than she would do it, and you would do it different than they would all do it. But does it really matter our methodology if we're united in mind and purpose? What is our purpose? To reach Jewish people and the nations with the good news of the Messiah. I think that's a pretty scriptural purpose to have. When Cephas sees the vision, to prove my point from scripture, of the sheet coming down from heaven, remember that? Which a lot of Gentile commentators always get that wrong. And they say, oh, that's why you could eat trafe now, because it's vision. But we learn when we read it in context that he wasn't talking about it wasn't about kosher and unkosher. It was about Gentiles being able to be a part of this Jewish movement, right? When we read it in context properly. But in that vision that Kepha had, it was obvious. It was a heavenly vision. But Kepha was obviously out of his comfort zone and out of the accepted norm. He said to them, you are well aware. And this is when he went to Cornelius's house. He said to them, you are well aware that for a man who is a Jew to have a close association with someone who belongs to another people or to come and visit him is something that just isn't done. That's what he said. Let me translate that to you. I am very uncomfortable with this, guys. This isn't done. You don't come to a Jew praying on the roof and tell him, come over to the Gentiles. But God has shown me not to call any person, see it's not about food, any person common or unclean. So when I was summoned, I came without raising any questions. You see, this was way out of Cephas' comfort zone. But he was united in mind and purpose with God. And if it meant, unlike Yonah, if we remember the story, who ran from God's purpose, if it meant doing something that just isn't done. He was all in. He got up and he left. You know the story. He didn't hesitate. He didn't argue with God. He didn't run to Tarshish. He just got up and went. So here, Kepha shows that he is absolutely all in and fixed on the purpose of seeing the good news advanced, even if it is beyond anything he would have ever even considered before. His heart and purpose were one with the kingdom and kingdom priorities. Tehillim 133, don't we love it? 
a song of ascents by David. Oh, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to live together in unity. That's there's an important thing to note here. Did did you you have friends, right? Who's been to college? I know we've all been, right? I found out something when I was really young in college. Living in the dorms, had my buddies. And my buddies came to me one day and say, hey, what do you think? We'll go out and we can rent a really great house. We can rent a whole house for what we are paying here in the dorms. And the three of us, we could get a house. We'll have our own room, eat our own food, and it'll be great. Okay, so we're all buddies. But I quickly learned that being friends with someone and living with someone, two different things. Easy to be friends with. But when they were going after my Cheerios <laughs> and my Pop-Tarts, or I should say my ramen noodles. <laughs> they stepped on toes. And I can tell you that moving out of the dorm and in with those bunch of guys was a nightmare. <laughs> and I spent the rest of my time, and I loved college, but I hated my living situation. Because living with people is different. And God says here how good and pleasant it is for brethren to live together in unity, to live, rubbing shoulders, me seeing you and you seeing the ugly me and saying, my gosh, he's irritating. <laughs> my gosh, he's too much. But be able to do that and live together in unity anyway. Wow. That's something. It is like fragrant oil on the head that runs down over the beard, over the beard of Aharon. It flows down on the collar of his anointed robes. And it's like the dew of Hermon that settles on the mountains of Zion. For it was there that Adonai ordained, or the word means commanded his blessing. He commands a blessing where there's unity. United in mind and purpose. Friends, look at me. I want to tell you, you think it's an accident that when you leave here, all of a sudden you have these thoughts popping up, and why didn't they do this, and why didn't they do that, and how come this, and how come that, and it leads into lunch and afterwards, and all of a sudden you're worked up about the leadership or worked up about the brethren in the congregation, and, and you know, you quickly get over it, but is that a coincidence? The enemy of our souls loves to sow divisive things because he understands the principle of unity. That if he could sow discord and disunity among the house of God, they will do nothing. Absolutely nothing. He works overtime to cause division and strife in the Kehillon. Don't be fooled into thinking that unity came easy for the early believers. See, we think, we're like, we think for some reason they were like exempt 
to all the things that you and I go through, that they kind of just floated on air. <gasps> Man, guys, these guys lived under tremendous stress. They were being hunted down, for goodness sake. These guys were under or in and living in and doing ministry in a pressure cooker. I'm sure there were plenty of short fuses to go around. Stress and pressure of ministry, of people, oh my gosh, we might get killed at any day. I mean, let's face it, you're going to do the work of the Lord and you get stoned with real rocks, pelted and dragged out and left for dead. Can't be something exciting. But they were. You see, we think they were just sitting around singing Kumbaya. <laughs> Friends, they had a ton of things to be concerned about. They were living through very, very tumultuous times. They were pioneers walking down uncharted roads, and yet they were able to maintain unity of purpose and mind. Unity takes commitment and dedication to the cause to the purposes of God. And it means that sometimes you will have to walk in the fruit of the Spirit in order to accomplish it. And you'll have to overlook things and do things a different way or go out of your comfort zone or say, hey, like Kepha, we've never ever done that before or even considered it, but I'll do it because whatever God wants. Maybe instead of getting worked up about methodology, if we put that energy into pulling in the same direction, the work of God would be more productive and more enjoyable. Someone wrote, we can work in harmony if we are in unity. But if we aren't in unity, the harmony will be horrible. A number of years ago in Canada... A little two-year-old girl wandered away from her neighborhood. It was cold, a cold winter day, and her parents alerted the neighbors, and they saw some tracks in the snow. But there were a lot of other tracks as well, and for several hours, the searchers went in all different directions calling her name. But they didn't find her. A little before sunset, one of the men said, instead of working separately... Let's join hands and form a long line and walk through the field together and we won't miss a square foot. And so they joined hands, as you know, that is often practiced today, and they went through the field. Calling her name. Tragically, they found her frozen body curled up. One of the men said with great anguish, oh, if we had only joined hands sooner. I know this. I don't know if I'll see it ever in my lifetime, but I know this, that God 
is waiting for us to come together united in mind and purpose. I know it. He's waiting for us to join hands. He's waiting of us to say, you know what? God, I don't care. Let's do it this way. I want to see the goal accomplished. It's up to us. And I think, you know what? We love the Lord, don't we? I have faith that we'll do it. I have faith that we'll do it, that we'll get that vision, be united in mind and purpose and go forward to see great things for God. You know what? The world paints, and a lot of the recent books in the kingdom of God paint a very bleak and dismal picture that's on the horizon, economically and sociologically, right? Very, very bleak. But this is what I think. The scripture, I know we should defer to the scripture, right? Says where sin abounds. Yeah, grace does much more abound. Hey, Bruce Jenner, whatever he is now, whoever he says he is, that is just typical of the direction the world is moving. But that's okay. Now, it's okay that they do that. It's okay in the sense that where sin abounds, get ready for a big dose of God's grace to reach people like that and turn them back again. Now, I don't know if that next operation is, I don't know what you do there, but bottom line is God is able to do it. And he can do anything for those who are united in heart and purpose. The last thing I want to close with today the last key we see in Acts 10, and there are other things to see. These are the three things that I picked out. Are the importance of conviction. And I'll read starting at 17, and it says this. But the Kohen Haggadol and his associates, who were members of the party of the Tzedukim, the Sanhedrin, were filled with je- jealousy. They arrested the emissaries and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of Adonai opened the doors of the prison, led them out and said, go, stand in the temple court and keep telling the people all about this new life. After doing that, they entered the temple area about dawn and began to teach. Down to verse 29, upon being brought before the Sanhedrin again, Kepha and the other emissaries answered, we must obey God not men. The God of our fathers raised up Yeshua, whereas you men killed him by having him hanged on a stake. God has exalted this man at his right hand as ruler and savior in order to enable Israel to do teshuvah and have their sins forgiven. We are witnesses to these things. So is the Ruach HaKodesh whom God has given to those who obey him. When I read this account, I realized that if at the inauguration of the message of Mashiach, if at that time it was entrusted to lesser men,
it is likely that the movement would have stalled and never ever realized its potential. If it was entrusted to men who were politicians or had the fear of man in their heart, the movement would have gone nowhere. We see a great conviction from Kepha and the others. We must obey God. They had a conviction. Friends, you can't make up a conviction. You can't rub the Bible on your head. Say, you got conviction. You either got it or you don't. Comes from the Kishkis. They said, we must obey God. You know what I mean now? We're going to obey God, period. Whatever it means, whatever you do, whatever the consequence, we're obeying God. End of sentence, done. That's what it's going to be. That's conviction. We don't see a lot of conviction today. There was a very popular Bible teacher who gave the go sign to what Bruce Jenner did. Go for it. Friend, something wrong with that conviction. You could tie me to a tree. There's no way those words could come out of my mouth. I couldn't say it. I couldn't, you couldn't get it out of me. It's not right. Period. It's not a thumbs up in God's eye. Read Romans. Read the Tanakh. God says it is not right. But that comes from conviction and the things you build your life around. If you build your life around the word of God and its convictions, you will have those same convictions. And the word of God will become your conviction. When we start to talk like Kepha is when we know we are on the right track. You know? When is the last time you heard someone say, we must go out and share the Besorah? We must go and pray and seek God's favor on the lost. We must work together as one man so the cause of Messiah will prevail. When's the last time you heard words like that? People don't talk like that anymore, really. Oh, Maybe we'll schedule in. Maybe we'll do it. If it's convenient, maybe I'll sign up. You know. Well, if it's going to offend the Sadduqim, maybe I should back down. Show them some love. Maybe I should just acquiesce and pray for them.
That's not what they did. And, and, and how successful were they? Very. Because they had a conviction. They didn't make up that conviction. It wasn't contrived. It was there. Friends, we need to have the convictions that are based on the word of God. And the Messiah who left the word to us and entrusted it to us to advance. Friends, hear me. To advance. To advance. Say advance. Not to maintain, but to advance. Yeah, one soul at a time, one friend at a time, one family member at a time, fine. But advance the cause. What Kepha is operating in here is a sincere and very deep conviction of heart that nothing will quell except for fulfilling God's purposes. It won't be quelled. No, it's not going to be quelled. You can't shut them up. You can put them in jail and then the jailer will come to faith. (laughs) Yeah, you can tell them not to sing, but he'll sing anyway and the doors will fly open. I know I'm talking, I was talking about Kepha now, but you know what I'm saying. You can't quell it if it's a conviction. Friends, that's how we need to be. Tevia, remember him? The Jewish dairy farmer in Fiddler on the Roof. He lives with his wife and five daughters in, in Tsarist Russia. Remember Tevia? Change is taking place all around him and the new patterns are now more obvious to Tevia than in, than in the relationship between the sexes. He's, that comes to bear in his little world. First, one of his daughters announces that she and a young tailor have pledged themselves to each other. Remember that? Even though Tevia had already promised her to the village butcher. Right? Initially, Tevia will not hear of his daughter's plans, but he finally, there's an argument, and he acquiesces to the daughter. A second daughter also chooses the man she wants to marry. Unheard of. An idealist revolutionary, Tevia is rather fond of him, and after another argument with himself, again he concedes to the changing times. And off she goes. A while later, Tevia's third daughter wishes to marry. She has fallen in love with a young Gentile. This violates Tevia's deepest religious convictions. It is unthinkable that one of his daughters would marry outside the faith. Once again, he has an argument with himself. On the one hand, on the other hand, he knows that his daughter is deeply in love. And he doesn't want her to be unhappy in any way, shape, or form. Still, he cannot deny his convictions. How can I turn my back on my faith, on my people? He asks himself. If I tried to bend that far, you remember the line, I'll break. And Tevye pauses and begins a response on the other hand, and then he pauses again and he shouts, No! 
There is no other hand. No. Can't do it. It's a conviction. Uh-uh. Can't be done. Friends, Kepha, the emissaries, the people throughout all the book of Acts had a conviction based on the word of God, based on the promised Messiah and his teachings. And they couldn't just sweep them under the carpet. They couldn't just wink, wink at society. They couldn't just say times are a-changing and that's just the way it is. They couldn't do it. Friends, they couldn't do it. They couldn't get the words out of their mouth. It wasn't in their DNA. They were changed and transformed people. They had to live by the convictions of the one whom they followed and laid their life down for. Friend, if there was more conviction in the body of Messiah in this country, friend, we wouldn't be thinking and worrying about the things we worry about. We would be overtaking we would be seeing droves of people, Jewish and otherwise, come to faith on a regular basis. But friends, when the, the, the kehilot is so much like the world, because the lack of convictions based on the word, and, and people can't even tell the difference. I, I was, um, we were talking in the leadership thing, and one of the rabbis said, you know, what do you do when, pe- when people you know, come into your synagogue and they're dancing with the thing and they're dressed inappropriately. And they have shorty, short, short shorts on. And they're dancing around and what do you do to that? And several of us, I said, well, then you got to go dance with him and tell him to sit down, cover up. So you got to do Trust me, you won't be popular when you do it, but you have to live by conviction, right? The conviction of the word of God, teachings of God's ways. When it comes to the purposes and calling of kingdom affairs, we need to have the same attitude that there is no other hand. There's no other hand. It is God's way. I mean, I mean, right? I mean, are you going to stand before God? Who are you? Because if you want to, I'm going to pray and fast before I die that I'm behind you. <laughs> if you're going to tell me that you're going to stand before God and say, God, <laughs> I, know, I know you wanted it this way. But I decided I'd improvise and do it my way. If you think that's okay, I, I, I will tell me it's you, and I will pray and fast. I want to be behind you because I want to see this because I don't believe it. God gave us his ways. And being a gentleman, listen to me, God won't force himself on you. He won't say you have to do it my way. You could do it your way, Korach. You could do it your way, Hananiah. You could do it your way, Sapphira. You could do it your way, Achan. You could do it your way. Go ahead. But don't think that I'm going to approve it, smile at it, wink at it, ignore it, because I won't. Because you have heard, and I've showed you a precedent that I won't. 
So God is saying that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. God's ways are right and true. I, like you, don't understand God's ways in their totality. Who can? But I could read and I can obey. Until we have this attitude that there's no other hand, no other side of the story, that there's no easy option. Why? Because God's work, the work he left us to do, the work he wants this congregation to complete is too important to leave into our hands. God doesn't leave it in the finite. He's infinite. He knows. You and I need this type of conviction because it is this type of conviction that leads to obedience. See, you and I do but we really have a conviction in our heart. When your convictions are based on the word of God, you obey God in his word because you really have that conviction. But if you're wishy-washy in your conviction, then you don't obey God's word in areas. Or do what he says if you're not deeply convicted about his ways. So our takeaways from this chapter is that we understand the importance of integrity. Be who you say you are. At work, at home, with your children, with your friends, with your husband, your wife. Be who you say you are. Second is the importance of unity and that we must operate as part of the whole and that we need to pool our abilities and our talents even if things done are different than we're comfortable. And lastly, we must come to understand the importance of conviction, having a strong God-oriented conviction about fulfilling his purpose. At the end of the day, what could we do that's more important with our life than that that has eternal value? What could you do that's more important to say, God, my whole life I worked to see this one soul come into your kingdom? Some would say that's a failure. But in the economy of the kingdom, that is a raging success. Is there anything more important, more valuable than his purposes and plans? There really isn't. We are duped into thinking that some things are more important, but they're not. So I want to leave you with those three things. The importance of integrity, the importance of unity and the importance of conviction. Let's pray. Avinu Malkinu, our Father and our King, we thank you for your word.
Father, we thank you for the great men of God and women of God that have gone before us, that have set us an example that we could follow, that we could glean from, that we can learn by their actions and by their words. And Father, I pray, Lord, that each one of us here, in the sound of my voice, would take to heart these three simple yet profound principles from chapter 5 of Acts. Father, that each one of us here indeed would be people who walk with integrity. People who live together in unity of mind and purpose that you've called us to here at Beth Emmanuel. And thirdly, Lord, that we would not be wishy-washy, but we would, Lord, walk in the conviction of your word. Father, that in our kishkas, in our heart of hearts, that we would not be able to move off of your word and your ways. And that we would stand firm in that. And Father, we would be the light that you called us to be. So Father, I pray that your grace would be upon each one here. Father, I know it's hard to do. I know it's challenging. I know, Lord, that the enemy comes to, Lord, deceive us in so many of these areas. But Father, I pray your grace over your people, your strength, Lord, to do what's right and to conquer over every challenge we face in these areas. And I ask it in Yeshua's name. Let's stand to our feet. Adonai said to Moshe, speak to Aharon and his sons and tell them that this is how you are to bless the people of Israel. You are to say to them, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and show you his favor. And may the Lord lift up his face towards you and give you peace. In this way, they are to put my name on the people of Israel so that I will bless them. Father, I pray that you would put your peace into every heart. Father, that you would enable each one to live out your purposes and your calling. And we give you praise and glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks for coming. Guys, come next week expecting a great time and a great service. If you're available at all this week for Thursday, so on, just show up and we appreciate it. Thanks again. Shabbat Shalom.